Chris Anglin, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. You're a candidate for the state Supreme Court. Why did you decide to run? I decided to run because I wanted to stand up for an independent judiciary. And I also wanted to show that partisan elections are a major mistake. And I think I've shown that through my run. And I'm also running in order to give conservative voters an alternative to the incumbent, because I don't think that she believes or supports one of the central tenets of traditional conservative values, and that is adherence to the state constitution and that there need to be three separate and co-equal branches of government. And why do you say that? What are some examples you could point to about that? It's clear that she has not stood up to the state legislature during her time on the bench, and she has not come out and condemned the state legislature's attempt to support her, even though she would be allowed to under judicial ethics rules. For example, when the state head of the GOP Dallas Woodhouse called me an enemy. There was no comment on that. He also called the respected Republican former Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr. He called him revolting. And then also she's been ruling in all these cases between the governor and the legislature. She's consistently been ruling with the legislature despite what they've done is, on several of the cases, what they've done is clearly unconstitutional. The state Republican Party has come out against you basically saying that you're a Democratic plant. What's your response to that? My response to that is that is absolutely not true. I used a process they put into place. I just used it differently than they would have liked. And now they're calling me a plant. I am running to win this race. And I think I've shown that I am the best candidate. I've gained 15 points in the last three weeks, and I'm currently ahead of Justice Jackson with a fraction of her donations. You were registered as a Democrat prior to the election, about three weeks prior to entering your name into the race, and then you switched parties. So do you understand why the Republican Party is calling you a Democratic plant? They believe that you're trying to siphon votes away from Barbara Jackson. Uh, Yes, I understand why they're saying that. But I I think there's there's no evidence to support that. And no one from the state Democratic Party, from the governor's office, or Anita Earls encouraged me to run, and I've never discussed it with any of them. I was in no way active with the Democratic Party prior to um, filing a run. So you're not running to help Anita Earls get elected? No, I'm, I'm running to win. And I mean, if people say you're trying to siphon off votes from Barbara Jackson, of course I'm trying to siphon off votes. That's what you do in an election. You try to take votes away from the other candidate. I'm trying to siphon off votes from Anita Earls, too, in order to win the race. When you said one of the reasons you got into the race, you said you were trying to show the fallacy of a partisan race. So what do you mean by that? And by the folly of partisan elections, I mean, I think partisan elections for judicial elections are a mistake. I'm not I'm not saying that partisan elections are a mistake for executive or legislative runs. It's I think they're a mistake for judicial candidates because traditionally the judicial branch is supposed to be a nonpartisan branch of government and it's not supposed to matter what the judge's particular party affiliation is. And I think that injecting partisan politics, and especially recently, like it's not even, it's hyper-partisan now. You have judges who are going to be more beholden to their respective parties or their special interests. And just as a little bit of background, in 1996, the state Supreme Court election was changed from partisan to nonpartisan. And then 
the state legislature changed it back in 2016. After Michael Morgan, who was the Democrat, he won that race. There was no RD next to their name on that election. It was nonpartisan. So they changed it back after that occurred. The legislature did. And I think in, we were the first state in over 50 years for an election to be changed from nonpartisan to partisan. The trend nationwide has been to change judicial races from partisan and nonpartisan for the election mm-hmm. or have some sort of like merit-based appointment system with a retention election. And when you ran, when you entered the race, uh, the legislature responded by passing a law that would have retroactively taken that label off of your name only in this race. It would have applied to some other people, I believe, in uh, Durham County, some uh, another yeah, candidate, Yan Wake. But there was no secret made from some of the legislators that their intent was to prevent you from having the R next to your name. And so you took them to court and you won that lawsuit. I mean, what has that process been like? Well, I bet they wish they had left, <laughs> left me alone. But... I think I was actually discussed. I mean, some people have called this the Chris Anglin law. My name was actually referenced numerous times by legislators and also their staff during the drafting and eventual adoption of this law. And I think it shows how far they were willing to go to help the incumbent get elected. I mean, they're willing to pull out all stops to make sure that she wins her reelection. But the way that has been, I mean, I guess the best word to describe it is crazy. When that happened, this whole race for a judicial race, it's gotten much more attention than I think anyone ever expected. So it's been kind of like learning as I go to respond to all the notice it generated. Could you have run as an independent? Yes, I could have run as unaffiliated. Okay. So you've talked about You'd like to see partisanship taken out of the Supreme Court. Would that not have been a better route to go to say, I'm going to be an independent, I have no party, rather than filing with a party? Uh, No, I think that if you're going to have a legitimate chance of winning, and at least in most races today, you need to have like one of the two main parties as your party designation on the ballot. You You either need to be a Republican or a Democrat. You don't think that the voters would have seen that and been like, oh, yeah, well, our, our judiciary should be independent of politics. So maybe this guy who's independent, you think maybe that's not realistic that that would have been successful? No, I don't think if I'd been an unaffiliated, I don't think I would have had a legitimate chance to win the race. Mm-hmm. And, and also this is supported by, um, in our case, there was actually an affidavit presented by a, um, I believe he was a political science professor. He stated in his affidavit that if you run as unaffiliated, your chance of winning decreases dramatically okay. as opposed to either being a Republican or a Democrat. Okay. I mean, just to be clear, my preference is that no judicial candidates have a R or a D next to their name. They're all just unaffiliated. So do you consider yourself a Republican or a Democrat? Like, I know you're registered as one, but do you consider yourself as belonging to either party? I consider myself a Republican, and that's one thing. As a judicial candidate, like your personal views on like the a lot of divisive issues can't come into play. 
because you you know you might eventually end up ruling on those. So I I consider myself a Republican to the extent that one of their traditional values is that they believe in upholding the, the U.S. and state constitutions, and they're the party that's traditionally been linked to how important it is to have an independent judiciary, mm-hmm. and that it's supposed to be a separate and co-equal branch of the government from the state from the legislature and the executive branch. I don't think that the current General Assembly believes in this and that they're good representatives of that belief. And I don't think the incumbent holds that belief any longer either. Is there a danger in even saying that since there's a good chance that were you elected, you'd be called upon to adjudicate issues between the legislature and the governor? And, and you've already stated that you believe that the legislature doesn't necessarily believe uh that well, you don't believe they're upholding the Constitution? I don't believe there's an issue with that. I mean, one of the, just the form we went to today, there was another Supreme Court candidate there, and there was uh, other Court of Appeals candidates. The thing that is, seems to be uniform now in the forums is to stand up for an independent judiciary, and there will be, from other candidates, there will be specific comments on the actions the legislature has taken. Judges are allowed to talk in generalities, but we're not supposed to comment on specific laws they've passed or specific issues which might indicate how we would vote. You have a more bare-bones campaign than your two opponents, I guess, because they have the political backing of their parties. How much of a campaign have you been able to build? That's correct. I don't have... It's tough to be being an, a candidate without the support of either the two, the state's two major political parties, but I've been able to build a campaign, and I think I've I've been more focused on social media And I have a campaign manager, and we try to reach out to people and raise money. And I'm traveling around and doing a lot of events now. And I think we're focused more on social media platforms. And also that the media attention that I've generated, I think, has made up, has helped close that That gap, that donation gap. One thing that I think is important to note is that like nationwide now, there are candidates who are who are not expected to win or don't or only are getting like a small percentage of the donations of their opponents are winning the races. I mean, there was the um, the woman who won in New York City, and then there was someone else who won in, I think, Wyoming or North Dakota in a primary. Her opponent raised over $400,000, and she raised less than five. Right. And she actually won the race. This is the time where people without a whole lot of like funding are able to win. If you had like a way of articulating your judicial philosophy, what would that be? There's a former, as I mentioned previously, there's a former, uh, he was a Republican justice. His name is Bob Orr. My philosophy would be similar to him. I think my philosophy will be, I'm not going to legislate from the bench. I'm going to interpret and not make the law. Your opponents, Anita Earls, she was pretty well known for the social, the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, and then uh, Barbara Jackson's the current justice. So our listeners are less familiar with you. Now you're an attorney. For our listeners, just give us a little bit about your law background. Okay, in my law background, it's pretty, it's been pretty diverse. The number of areas I've practiced. I mean, I've done a little bit of everything. I'm, I've owned a solo practice since I've started. And initially, it's what most people would call walk-in-the-door law. So I do it like everything, basically, that I could get. I did everything from court-appointed criminal work to real estate closings, wills and estates, employment law, construction, personal injury, transactional stuff. And I practice at every level of court in North Carolina. 
in criminal cases. I've done district and superior court cases. Mm. And then in civil claims, I've done from small claims to the court of appeals. So like small claims, district, superior, and appellate work. And then I've also done fe- like federal cases as well. So I think having that broad background in a number of areas of law has kind of helped. It shows me the hurdles that people face when they essentially, when they enter the justice system, I mean, when they have a case in court, whether or not they're a defendant to a criminal case or they're a party to a civil case. You had mentioned some of the problems you had with uh, Barbara Jackson's time on the bench. Uh, Do you have an opinion or, or an impression of your other opponent, Anita Earls? I mean, I think she's She's qualified, and she's very friendly. We've met. She's knowledgeable in the law. But I think the important distinction is is that between Justice Jackson and Miss Earls, I think I fall in the middle. I think I would be more of a moderate jurist. Another important difference between all three of us is that they both believe in partisan elections, and I do not. I believe in, in nonpartisan elections. So I think that's in a, like an important distinguishing point between the three of us. Beyond your work background, who are you as a person? What should listeners know about you? I mean, I think I'm a pretty regular guy. I went to Wake Forest for undergrad. So for better or worse, I'm a Wake Forest sports fan, uh-huh. <laughs> which, which it's like, I mean, I'm basically like when it comes to sports and being a Wake Forest fan, I'm basically like a masochist because they've been terrible for years. <laughs> so I'm a huge sports fan. I mean, I, I constantly go to sporting events, whether it's like football or basketball games. Are you a North Carolinian? I've lived here for 21 years, but I lived here from the ages of 5 to 12. And then I came back up here to go to Wake Forest when I was 18. I see. So I've lived in North Carolina for the last 14 years. Where were the 12 to 18 years? I was initially born in Houston, Texas. And then when I was five, we moved to Apex, which is a suburb of Raleigh. Oh, okay. And then 12 to 18, I lived in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Were you always interested in getting into the law? I think I've always been interested in being an attorney. I mean, I have a project that my mom probably gave me two or three years ago from, I think I was in like fourth or fifth grade. And it's one of those like, you know, you put pictures on it and you kind of say what you wanted to be. I was probably like 10, maybe. I said I wanted to be a lawyer. And then in like middle school, I started reading a bunch of John Grisham books and I started watching Law and Order. I always wanted to be Jack McCoy. He was a prosecutor on Law and Order from the mid 90s to like the late 2000s. And then I went to college and it sharpened my interest and I graduated and I thought I was, I would like to be a lawyer. So you knew from a young age what you wanted to do. Yeah, no, I think I've known from a young age that I wanted to be an attorney primarily because I think I like how one person can make such a difference on behalf of your client. And I mean, there's tons of areas of law. I think like the lawyer referral service for the North Carolina Bar Association, there's like over 90 areas of law you can mark off. But it's important. Whatever you're doing is important to that client. But I think I've seen like how much, like how one lawyer, like depending on the case you're doing, it can it makes a substantial difference in the life of the person you're representing. Mm-hmm. But also, it can depending on the type of case it is, especially if it's an appellate case, it can have a substantial impact on society. What do you do in your personal time when you're not working? Like, what do you what yeah. what kind of fun stuff do you get into? Well, when I'm not working. Um, I'm a major fan of sporting events. There's a lot of, I go to a lot in Raleigh. And then I travel a fair amount. My parents live in Florida, so we see each other frequently. Are they okay uh, with the hurricane bearing down? Oh, yeah. 
they're okay. I mean, they're in Central Florida, so it's more to their it's more to their west. Okay, I think, but they've they've stocked up on foods. So they should be fine. Plus, my only my dad's there. My sister and mother are in Iowa visiting her mom, so they're luckily going to stay out of the path. I also anything water related. I have a scuba diving license, and I'm I mean I grew up swimming. I swam from the ages of five to eighteen. I see. So I'll do anything water related, like whether it's scuba diving or um, just. Plain water. I actually play water polo. Mm-hmm. I'm a member on an adult team in, in Raleigh. We, I mean, it's a lot of time. It's a major time commitment. We practice. Yeah, I could practice two or three times a week if, if I wanted. And then also just doing general things with my friends. As the years have gone on, you know, I'm kind of transitioning to the phase now, where you know you kind of get away from like your younger, your younger days. And it's interesting to see all my my friends are married now and having children. Oh yeah, are you married and have children? No, I am I'm single, never married, no children. But I certainly hope to be one day. I mean, it's interesting to see how um my friends are like I'm doing events now where stuff like children's birthdays and things like that. Oh, like with your friends yeah, and all that. Friends. How old are you? I'm 32. 32. Okay. Yeah, you're a young guy then. You're yeah. younger than me, 34. Wow. So, so you were concerned about what you saw at the Supreme Court level, the state Supreme Court, and I, I, I take it, you know, from what you've been saying, that you've been concerned about what you've been seeing from the North Carolina legislature. What's been bothering you? What, what haven't you liked about what you've seen? I have many concerns about what the state legislature has done over the last several years, but several things. I'll just be specific to the judiciary. One was making the Supreme Court race partisan. In a little bit of background. In 2016, I mentioned that the Supreme Court race was nonpartisan, but the Court of Appeals race was not. And it said RRD next to the candidates' names. And at that race, the Republicans went 5-0. and So seeing that, the legislature, they changed it to be a partisan race for the Supreme Court because they thought that would help Justice Jackson win. And then secondarily, in 2014, they got rid of publicly funded elections. There was a system whereby for statewide elections, there was some sort of matching available. And I strongly disagree with that because it allows for an influx of money. In the 2016 Supreme Court race, approximately 5 to $6 million was spent, which in terms of like a gubernatorial senatorial race, that might not be a lot. But it was one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, statewide Supreme Court election in the entire country in 2016. Another action they've taken late last year when they made the races partisan, they got rid of primaries. For any judicial seat now, there were no primaries. There could have been literally hundreds of candidates for one seat if that many people had wanted to run. The only requirement to run was that you wanted to run. There wasn't even like a petition requirement where you had to get a certain number of people to sign a petition stating they were that they supported your candidacy, which is sometimes required. And there was a lot of worry about that, actually, from the Democratic side, that there were going to be a lot of Democrats running because there was a, it's, this was a year it was considered that Democrats would be really enthusiastic about running. And there was even the case of a, I believe, like a conservative group that was airing television ads or some sort of ads encouraging Democrats to run for your race. Yeah. Um, yeah, the state legislature, they did all this over the objections well, of everyone else, the state Democratic Party actually filed a lawsuit in federal court trying to reinstate the primaries, and they lost because they were concerned that people would try to well change from Republican to Democrat and then run as um, Democrat. And you're right. And there also was there was a group that was I think it's been linked to the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, which is a major 
donor to the Republican Party, and they spent in judicial races. A group linked to them and and some and someone else in the GOP. They sent out they sent out flyers where they encouraged lawyers to run as Democratic candidates for the state Supreme Court and the three Court of Appeals races. What do you want voters to know when they go into the booth in November or earlier about you? What should they look at when they're looking at those three names? Well, I think the thing I'd like voters to remember is that I've shown that I will go to the mat for the independence of the judiciary, and I've shown that I can succeed. I've won the lawsuit, and also I'm currently leading Justice Jackson in the polls, the most recent one that came out on Monday. I mean, I've jumped 15 points in the last three weeks, and just having the fraction of the donations that either the incumbent or Miss Earls has. And what do you think is to account for that? I think it's been campaigning, and I think it's also due to the fact there was a statewide like judicial candidate information brochure that was sent out. It was sent out to 4.5 million households with registered voters in North Carolina. I think that is in part. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in getting back, I'd like people to know that I'll fight for the independence of the judiciary. And also, I think I will be, as a jurist, I'll fall somewhere in the middle between Justice Jackson and and Mrs. Earls, which I think is important to remember. And also, I'm a millennial. I think there needs to be like a newer, like a younger generation of people come into leadership roles from the millennial generation. And I think that I can, that at least on the state Supreme Court, I'm that person. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't have to do with your race. Well, maybe it does. Um, but I asked uh, Barbara Jackson and Anita Earls about the Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination because all of that was going on while we were talking. Uh, the hearings and all of that. When you watched how that was going on, what did you think about that? And then also, since people's focus, especially for the last few weeks, was so much on what was going on on that federal level, I guess remind listeners what the stakes are for a state Supreme Court race. Well, firstly, however you fall in the Kavanaugh matter, and I know it's um, people from both spectrums, they fall have different opinions. I think the the primary takeaway I have from that is that the current process to appoint Supreme Court justices or U.S. Supreme Court justices and federal judges in general, it's broken and it no longer works. I mean, there's there's a seat in the Eastern District of North Carolina for federal judge. It's been empty for over 10 years. It might even be more than 15. Unless Trump has appointed someone, it was the longest federal district court vacancy in the country. And I think the procedure is broken because now at the hearings, it provides an opportunity for either party to grandstand and basically give soliloquies without getting any information from the um, candidate. And it also provides them a chance to attack the other party. And I think from both from Kavanaugh and also when Merrick Garland, like when his appointment by President Obama was held up through the new election, I think it shows the process is broken. And I think one of the primary problems with that, as far as I know, there's not like a firm set of rules that governs how this is done when there basically is for everything else in the government. I mean, I think they need to institute a standard set of rules, which is applicable to every judge. And some things that come to mind, I mean, it it would just honestly be like in a civil, in court cases, there's all these deadlines about when you have to complete the discovery by mediation a trial date. 
I think there needs to be certain, and these are just common sense things. I think there needs to be rules from like the day the nomination is made, there needs to be a judiciary committee vote within something like 106 months of 180 days of the date the appointment's made. Something that and would then, have basically ensured yeah. that Merrick Garland at least yeah. got a vote. Yeah, and then within 60 days of the commission of the judiciary vote, there's a general vote. And then there's more specific rules about the documents being produced. All documents that are responsive to either side's request are answered within 15 days. I mean, when the Democrats were receiving tens of thousands of pages of document, like, maybe even just a day in advance, that's completely unfair. Mm. So there needs to be those rules that you get this information or the documents in a significant, at least 30, 15 or 30 days in advance to provide it an opportunity to review. And it will apply to either party. And then as far as the stakes, what are the stakes in a like a state Supreme Court race? And yeah, and I, and sorry, and that's a good point. And I mean, I think one thing is people in talking to people, some people don't even know you know, most people know way more about what's going on at the federal level than they do about local or state politics, especially when it comes to judicial candidates. I mean, I've talked to people who they don't even know that there's a state Supreme Court and much less that it's elected. Right. I just I mean, I try to explain it to people the best I can. I say it's the it's the North Carolina equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court without the lifetime appointments, mm-hmm. and it's elected. But I think the important thing to remember is is that all these constitutional rights, which have traditionally been the province of the U.S. Supreme Court, like racial discrimination and racial gerrymandering, abortion issues, etc., like the most hot-button topics in our society, state Supreme Courts they can rule on those cases as well. State constitutions can provide more rights to those state citizens than the U.S. Constitution does. However, it's the rule is state constitutions cannot provide less protection. So I think the okay. thing that um, is important to remember is, given the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, the things that have been traditionally been the province of the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to rights issues on any topic, you're not going to find relief now. But you're going to have to find relief at the state Supreme Court. So we're going to get a patchwork of 50 states where you have different levels of constitutional rights. So I think that's why the state Supreme Court races are now so important. It affects literally every aspect of your life. Their rulings do now because the Supreme Court is just not going to take up those cases that it traditionally has. That might not happen for a generation now. Mm -hmm. It might not happen for decades. So the state Supreme Courts are as of Saturday, are more important than they have been in our entire lifetime. Right. And they're not lifetime appointments, but they're eight-year terms. So they're, Correct. They're, that's a long time. Yeah, they are eight-year terms, and that, is, and that is a long time. So I think it's important people f- to remember that your state politics can influence you more than federal politics can. There is a, a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would switch around kind of the judicial appointment process and give more power to the legislature. And there's been some rumors that this could be part of a court packing maneuver where should this amendment pass that the legislature could come back after the election and add two seats to the state Supreme Court. Like, for instance, if Anita Earls lost, uh, it would still be four to three Democratic. But if they added two Republican seats, if you're looking just party label that it would be then five to four Republican. Do you have an opinion on that that uh, amendment? I'm not sure if you're able to comment on it. Oh, no, I'm 
I have, I said in that, um, I've said it time and again, and I said it in that questionnaire that got sent out to people by the State Board of Elections, you should vote no. This is a specific example of the state legislature trying to make the judiciary an extension of it instead of a separate and co-equal branch. And I think that fear that you just mentioned, where there will be court packing, I think that is a completely legitimate fear. And I think it should be voted against. And I think actually, based on the poll that I was referencing, where I jumped 17 points, it was done by Elon University. I believe that every other constitutional amendment had polled above 50%, with the exception of the judicial one, where more than 50% of people said they would not vote in favor of it. Interesting. Which is good. I mean, I think, I think it's important. That might be the most, possibly the most important one on there, because if that passes, the um, there's a good chance that they will that court packing will be attempted, and that's one of the most undemocratic things you can do. And I mean, you can see how dangerous that is. The head of the state GOP, Dallas Woodhouse. There was a case that was filed by Governor Cooper and the NAACP trying to get some of the amendments off the ballot, and he threatened the Supreme Court justices with impeachment if they ruled in favor of the governor or the NAACP, or I guess also like the there's an environmental group who's also a party. Mm-hmm. He threatened them with impeachment already. So I think they're walking a very dangerous line where they no longer believe in the fundamental tenets of democracy. And you can actually see it in West Virginia, too. West Virginia just removed all their Supreme Court justices. It was a Republican governor and legislature, and I believe it was a 3-2 Democratic majority. They just removed all those judges. Right. And he waited, and magically the governor, they waited until, I think there was a cutoff in August where they had to remove them by for new people to file to run in this election. And mysteriously, they waited until the day after that deadline passed to remove all of them, and it gave the governor the power to appoint the judges. And I think it's just actions like that show how unfair this is. And I have a Twitter account, and it's interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll do hashtag independent judiciary. And the main places like that comes up, it's not U.S. states. It's other countries like Turkey and Pakistan. You know, where they have a real problem with judicial independence. So I think it shows how many problems we have as a state where, you know, we're having the same issues as they do in these countries, which arguably are not, they're not real democracies. Well, Chris Anglin, those are my questions. Is there anything that we didn't cover you think we should have? Not necessarily. I mean, I think, thank you for uh, providing me the opportunity to come speak. And I, I mean, I hope, and I hope people vote for me, but I think no matter who you vote for, whether you vote for Justice uh, Jackson or Anita Earls, I hope you go out and vote. I mean, this is a very important midterm election, no matter how you fall on the spectrum. I think it's crucial to get out there and vote. And I hope this is an opportunity to educate themselves on the role of the justice system and how, and just that the legal system impacts every day, like literally almost every aspect of your life. And I hope people encourage their friend and family members to vote. That's one of the major problems especially this is called the blue moon election. There's no governor or senatorial race that's on the ballot. Um, I mean, the top level race is actually my race, mm-hmm. is that there's not going to be, there's a chance there's not going to be that much participation. And I hope I hope we prove that wrong, especially millennials. I hope, I hope millennials get out there and vote. And turn out. Yeah. Well, we hope people take the time. And I, I appreciate you taking the time as well. 
No, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. All right.